Welcome to the Sourcing Hero podcast produced by UNA, a group purchasing organization that empowers sourcing heroes and Art of Procurement, the world's largest procurement podcast network. I'm your host, Kelly Barner. The goal of the Sourcing Hero podcast is to capture the epic stories of people who are rising up and beating the odds to create exceptional value within procurement directly from those heroes themselves. Today, my guest here on the Sourcing Hero podcast is Ian Arthurs. Ian is the founder and CEO of Circular.co, a supply chain platform designed to close the gap between supply and demand for recycled goods like plastics. In this role, he is applying his two decades worth of experience with digital platform leadership to solve global sustainability problems by addressing illiquid markets. So hi, Ian. Thank you so much for being with me today. Hey, Kelly. How are you? Great to chat again. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Now, I shared a little bit about where you and your team focus in my intro, but I'd love the opportunity to learn a little bit more about you before we get started. So what should people that haven't met you yet know about you before we dive into our conversation today? All right. Yeah. So what's kind of what should people know? What what's non-obvious if you go and read my LinkedIn profile or, or something like that? I think there's there's three things that immediately jump to mind. One is I'm not a commodities or a manufacturing industry expert, right? So I describe myself as a tech business leader um, helping solve material physical problems, right? So at the intersection of bits and atoms. Um, I'm not. I'm also not necessarily a climate activist or somebody who leads with climate thinking. I'm somebody who leads with business and economic thinking. And that leads me to my second thing, which is my real professional passion. What, what kind of really gets me going is the intersection of illiquid markets, economics, and environmental problems now. Um, and I really start to nerd out on on economics. That's that's when I get excited. Um, and lastly, I think uh, if I look back on the last you know twenty years at companies like Google, Airbnb, TaskRabbit, and Medium, I I reflect back that if, what I really appreciate in technical products is simplicity and ease of use. So I find myself always driving towards layperson's language, towards simple things. Uh, that we can easily understand because we as humans tend to gravi- gravitate towards things that we can understand. Um, so so that's that's kind of the non-standard stuff that you would get to know about me if we actually have a chat for an hour, which we're doing now. So ha- happy to dive into any of those as we go. Absolutely. Well, and speaking of non-standard things, uh, one little detail you shared when you and I last spoke is that you would pretty much always rather be fly fishing. Now I'm positive, Ian, that does not apply to this particular session. I'm sure you would rather be nowhere in the world, but sitting here with me having this This conversation. I am deeply focused and present (laughs) in our conversation. Yes. (laughs) But do tell, what do you enjoy so much about fly fishing and how does that passion connect to the work that you do at Circular? 
Yeah. Oh my God. I, I, I love that you brought this up. It's so non, non-standard for a discussion like this. It's great. Yeah. I, I just love fly fishing. I'm such a nerd about this stuff. I've got like 30 fly rods and my garage is full of gear and I spend weeks out of a year going to just fun, crazy places in the world that are in the backwoods. I also, by the way, love skiing and hiking and getting out with my family and, and really at its core, it's about being in beautiful places in the world. And to get to your questions, like how does this whole thing about my personal um, passions kind of drive my professional side? And, and really, it's for me, it's about in those wild, beautiful places, particularly now I'm taking my kids there, I, I can see the difference that we're making to our planet in the water, in the environment. I grew up in, I was born in Ireland and I grew up in Scotland. My grandfather taught me to fly fish there. And, um, you know, 30 years ago, uh, our rivers had more fish in them. Our rivers were cleaner and clearer and now they're not. And we're starting to see that, particularly in California, actually, there's been a precipitous decline in anadromous uh, fish species. Um, and it's really, it's kind of a, you know, canary in the coal mine that I can see personally when I'm out on the river every day. So that got me thinking as I amassed a certain amount of expertise and experience in my life, what did I, how did I want to put that to use? And it became obvious that I wanted to really get into starting my own company. And that got me to thinking about applying my experience to some of the more um, kind of visceral experiences that I've had in the environment. Um, so my first idea actually was to take on the, the the water issues that we're seeing in California and the West. And it turns out when you unravel that, it's a global water crisis that we're facing. Short story, very, very challenging to apply technology to some of those issues that we're seeing in, in the world of water and water shortages. It's, it's really more of a policy issue at this point, and particularly with agriculture. So I didn't see a, a match necessarily applying directly my skills to my passion as it were. But what that did was start me on a journey of figuring out, well, what's next? Like we're, we're all facing an issue with climate change. Surely we can apply solutions that we've all seen in technology and B2B or B2C to help further some of the efforts um, in, in other parts. And that's what led me to work with a, um, an amazing venture capital company and then dive deeper into kind of adjacent opportunities. And that's what led me to recycling, actually. So recycling um, and the opportunities in recycled plastic. And then if you expand that to like sustainable commodities, like aluminum, paper, glass, even go all the way up to things like cement, right? Those manufacturing inputs really power our world. And we're on the uh, immediate change of having those things go from carbon intensive inputs to recycled, more environmentally preferred um, inputs. And if we do that, we can have a real impact on carbon emissions, pollution, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the real problems there have all been solved before in technology. So we can kind of apply the history and move our progress forward faster there. So that's, that's a very roundabout way of telling you how it got from standing in a river waving a stick to uh, <laughs> building a platform to help uh, make it easier to buy and sell recycled plastic. Well, I actually think it makes a lot of sense, partially because of one word that I heard you use, and that was impact. 
Yeah. Right. You know, it's easy to talk about recycling and sustainability, and we love to see those little green leaf icons on things. Like it just makes us feel good. But if we approach this challenge like adults, like people with data backgrounds, like people with analytical backgrounds, there are some concerning data points arising that suggest for all of our talk and all of the trends and all of the popularity that the results we're looking for aren't necessarily materializing. So yeah. do you have any specific concerns in this area around you know, the disconnect maybe between people generally agreeing this is the right thing to do versus wanting to be able to measure the results of all of that enthusiasm? Yeah, this is having that measurable impact, I think, is at the heart of what we're trying to do here. Um, so first of all, there's there's an incredible source of data out there when you, I spent, as I think I mentioned this, six months going really deep on the problems that we face in providing sustainable solutions to commodities and manufacturing inputs. And just starting with recycle, recycled plastic alone, which is just one small component of, of um, the, the overall enterprise. Um, there's a number of studies out there. So Google, or my old friends at Google, have um, uh, they wrote a number of papers out there on circularity uh, that just stand out fantastic, uh, really data-driven. Ellen MacArthur uh, Foundation, another amazing proponent that is using data to kind of have a great baseline for us to move forward. They get together with thousands of manufacturers and brands throughout the world and help them figure out ways that they can commit to uh, reducing virgin plastic and then measuring that as well. And then go down to companies like McKinsey. They're, st they're seemingly publishing articles every other month that have just incredible stats on where we are in the world and where we need to go to. So if you spend enough time, you can find some really good data out there. The key is spending enough time. You have to go, you have to go really deep in my opinion on this. And the story that I found that I just found just incredibly um, um, appealing to try and apply my skills to really started in that, that plastic space, right? So if you think about what the current plastics industry looks like right now, it's phenomenally large. So, and it's just in everything we do. Like I'm sitting at a table beside a window and almost everything in front of me has some level of plastic in it, right? So plastic is an incredible technological innovation that allowed us to evolve to where we are today, really. It's just foundational. It's the fabric of our lives. Um, and it's awesome, but but it's causing an issue and we need to figure out how to make it more sustainable going forward. But so first of all, I got a little scale and this stuff blows my mind. So uh, plastics industry today is about $600 billion worth um, a year. And that's based on about 400 million tons produced every year, right? And for anyone that's like me, it's, those are nice big numbers. But I don't actually, I can't figure out what the scale of that is. Like, how, what does that look like physically, right? So that this helps me understand the size of the problem. So I did a little math. And if, if most of my assumptions are right, so if we put that in, in trucks, let's say, let's say all of this plastic was in what's called resin or pellets, which are like tiny little things that are the manufacturing input, and you filled regular old semi-trucks up, it goes around the world. Those trucks put nose to tail, goes around the world 12 times. Wow. So that's the volume of plastic that is produced every single year. And when I think about that, I think about trucks lined up going around the world 12 times, like, okay, yeah. wow. Okay, next question. How much of that 
goes into recycling and gets a, a, another life? And how much of it goes into our oceans? How much of it goes into landfill? How much of it goes into the air? And this is where it starts to get a little wor more worrying, right? So um, there have been a number of studies that show that less than 10%, about 9% of all plastic, <clears throat> excuse me, produced is actually recycled. And there's been a number of studies recently to show that in the U.S. it's maybe significantly lower than that, as, as little as 5%. Okay, that's not great. 15% um, is incinerated or also called uh, energy recovery, which is a fancy way for saying burned. And obviously <laughs> there's pollution um, uh, issues with that. And the rest goes into landfill, right, or is, is litter. But the landfill is an easy way to kind of scrape things away. But obviously that has significant environmental impacts and all of our landfills are filling up as well. So, so that's how, that's, that's where all that, you know, 400 million tons goes and it's non-sustainable obviously. So that's the background. When you look at that and you think, Oh geez, that's, that's how, how are we going to start to kind of make a difference in that? And where do we go from there? I th think it's always positive to look at, well, somebody's doing well, across the world in terms of recycling. There's always pockets of, oh, wow, that's great. Let's let's try and figure out um, uh, that uh, best practice. Countries like Germany or Scandinavian countries, um, close to Germany, um, their recycling rates are way higher. So they're on the you know top decile of recycling. They're in the 30% rates. Um, they also recycle things like plastic uh, bottles, like the PET bottles. Uh, the majority of those, so way north of 70%, which is incredible, right? So like it can, we can do better. We can create more circularity. It's not all doom and gloom, but the averages are not great. And Ellen MacArthur Foundation um, just launched uh, uh, um, another study um, from 2022 data uh, saying that effectively our, um, uh, our collective uh, ambitions are not being met. So most brands worth their salt have some kind of commitment to reduce their dependence on plastic, virgin plastic by 2030. And we really haven't actually collectively made that much impact on that goal in the last four years. That's the, that's the headline. There are pockets of success. There are pockets of not, of course, but the average says that there's not that much movement. And we can point to things like um, the pandemic and things like global supply chain shortages as, as, um, reasons but really it's it's more fundamental than that there's there are multiple blockers in the industry that are stopping us from becoming um, uh, uh, more recycled using more recycled products and and having more reusable products and that's where the studies go and that's where our company has really has really gone to um, so that's the that's the worrying stuff right um, and I think it's really important to look at that uh, worrying data and say okay well how might we make a change so, so, so that's really that's really where we are um, today. Um, and if you'd like, I can kind of go into a couple of the pockets that we've seen those those companies that are doing well, the companies that aren't doing well in our journey. We've kind of we've kind of figured out where the problems lie. And if you define where the problems lie, then you can start to say, okay, well, here's how we can apply solutions and create circularity. Absolutely, no. We'd love to hear a couple of those stories. Maybe let's let's start with the juicy stuff. Where are things not going well? Yeah. So so there's in America at least, which is where we're based and where we start started. We're now uh, operating in in Europe as well and in some parts of Asia too. So America as a large country 
has some challenges in infrastructure, right? So Germany is organized centrally in terms of its recycling infrastructure. So it's easier to um, gain control of that and to have kind of like standardized processes. America is run by federal government, obviously, and then local governments as well. But each each municipality effectively has its own recycling programs. So when you've got thousands of those, it makes it really hard to create standards. So um, the studies that our friends at Google pointed to said there's really two main problems in creating more circularity, increasing the effectiveness of recycling. One is infrastructure like that, right? It's like it's if it's decentralized, there are benefits, but really it's harder to then kind of get mass change. And then two, and probably most fundamentally, this is where I get excited, is the economics. So um, the, the economics of recycling itself are challenging. If you go and, and read uh, Bill Gates's book, his latest book, or you hear him speak, he talks about this concept of green premiums. And I think this is where the heart of our challenges really lie. So uh, talk to any buyer of, or would-be buyer of post-consumer resin, I'm gonna call that PCR. So that's recycled plastic, okay? Uh, any PCR buyer will tell you one of three things that are problematic with it. A, I can't get it. B, it doesn't really work the way that Virgin does. And then C, all of that means it's too expensive. It's actually priced probably about 10 to 30% higher than Virgin plastic. But the other two things that I talked about have an economic impact as well. So there's this green premium that is north of 10 to 30% for any purchaser, any buyer of PCR. That's a little tough to take, right? Particularly because it's not, it's variable as well. It's not as good as Virgin. <laughs> so, so that green premium is the start of our challenge. And then go flip over to the supplier side for a second. So the, the recycling value chain is pretty complex, right? It's not just like a producer creates it and sells it. It comes from waste. So it's, it's collected in, in, munici in municipalities. Um, and then it's processed and crushed. Sorry, it's crushed into bales and then processed by a recycler into pellets. And the, the, um, the profits, the historical profits in that act of collection and, um, and processing have never really always been profitable. So the reason why much of our plastic goes into landfill is because it's actually economically more attractive for a collector, a collector sorry, to put it into landfill than it is to recycle it. They can't, even though there's a green premium on the buyer side, the, um, the, the producers of it aren't realizing a profit. So what we're trying to do, what I'm trying to think about is how can we get, how can we lower that green premium so buyers find it more attractive and are more willing to, to, to buy and also ensure that there's profitability for the processors in the middle. And if we do both of those things, which by the way are very complicated, then we have a much higher chance of success. And this is, this is kind of the Bill Gates kind of economics first. If you provide attractive economics, then innovation will follow. And that's what we're just starting to see now in recycling. We're starting to see a lot of capital expenditure and a lot of investment as well. And so there's a lot of concerns. There's a lot of challenges, right? There's, there's big things like infrastructure and overall economic forces that we have to wrangle with. Uh, but Ian, you seem like a positive guy. And so you also promised good news. So I have to think that there's a lot of upside evidence of success, evidence of progress here as well. Um, and so, you know, 
what do we sort of look towards? What's the inspiration? Mm -hmm. What ground has been made up? Yeah, I see a lot. So I sit in a world that's that's a venture backed world, right? So I see early stage innovation being applied to big problems. And I see if you break down that that recycling value chain again, we're starting to see a lot of investments and pockets of innovation that I think are trending towards a new normal. And in the in the next five years, there's going to be significant changes. So I'm looking at those trends that that may not be obvious in the data yet. So we're not seeing outcome yet, but we're seeing a lot of a lot of in, input. So start at the collections, um, the collections world. So a lot of discussion about. Um, what we're collecting and sorting as well. So there's significant uh, innovations as far as um, the products that are being created, plastic products that are being created to make them recyc- more recyclable or more reusable, right? So there's a lot of uh, innovation there. I actually just attended um, the Ellen MacArthur uh, Foundation workshop in Sweden a few weeks ago, and there was a big focus on, on reuse. And there are a number of studies and, and um, uh, brands out there that were really going deep into more reusable products. So that's that's a good start, right? But once things go in the trash bin and they get um, uh, collected, there's also a pocket of innovation around sortation um, that makes it much more effective. So if you think about how your what's in your trash, your, in, in San Francisco, we have the blue trash bin, which is your recycles, right? And where does that go? So it goes to a material recovery facility or a MRF, and it gets sorted in some way, ranging from hand sortation, humans digging through it and going and going from left to right, all the way to what we're seeing now is super advanced infrared uh, AI-driven sortation that has puffs of air or a robot picking things out in order to create almost perfect sortation. So you can uh, now, but it's, it's it will be in the future, you can say, I want 100% clear PET bottles, and it, it will allow you to do that, right? So, so AI-driven sortation is a big thing in, in collections. Price needs to come down, needs to be adopted more, but we'll get there. Um, in, in processing, uh, which is, you know, you take bales of crushed plastic, you clean it, you melt it, and then you extrude it. Um, the biggest pocket of innovation really is is uh, what what they call advanced recycling, but it's also called chemical recycling, which is breaking the polymer down into its kind of core monomers and then rebuilding it so it's almost virgin quality, and that's a huge area that is very promising. But um, it takes a lot of capital, and there's a lot of work to do in order to scale that up. So there's a number of companies doing that um, now with varying degrees of success. So it's super small scale today, but in five, 10 years, we're going to start to see almost almost virgin-like quality recycled mm-hmm. material, uh, which gets rid of one of those blockers that I talked about, which is recycled material isn't as good. So that's really promising as well. There's a number of other kind of studies and things that are still in a lab as well that are promising bioplastics, for example, to um, uh, organics that will break down plastics in other ways. But again, very small scale. Um, And then, yeah. And then lastly, go to the to the buyer side. Right. And part of the challenge of buyers, PCR buyers and folks that listen to your podcast, the procurement folks, uh, it's really hard to go and figure out if, if you're challenged by your company to go and buy 
you know, X thousand tons of PCR, how do you start? Where do you go? And, and the market, there was never really a market, right? Until four, four years ago, you know, there was no real easy way to navigate this market and find out where to get um, supply, how much it should cost, how do you ship it? How, what's the quality of it? How do I test it? All of those things are now coming into, into, into being right now. So companies like us, um, we help to provide that solution to navigate the market, to help buy and sell and just make it easy. Um, so that's happening here. It's happening in Europe all over uh, as well. So um, those are just a few examples of kind of pockets of innovation that when you sum them all up over time, we're going to make some significant impact. Well, it's interesting. It's almost like getting a look behind the curtain, right? Because I think most of us recycle at home, may recycle at the office, may participate in that in a restaurant, in a store, when you have a choice of, of where to put something that you don't want anymore. But the level of complexity, and then especially when you bring in the idea that all of this VC backing and early stage innovation is, is attacking this challenge with its vast resources, clearly as much as there's enthusiasm, it's like if people really knew the full story of what's going on, it's both more challenging and also more exciting than anything we might have imagined without having access to those details. Yeah. And so I'm actually really going to be interested to hear your point of view. Um, Sourcing Hero listeners know this is our tradition. Mm-hmm. You get the choice, Ian, between one of two questions. Either how would you define what it means to be a sourcing hero? Or what do you think heroism looks like in a business context? So I'll give you that choice. Okay. Okay. So as a CEO and as a founder, Kelly, when I'm given choices like that, binary choices, typically I reject them. (laughs) I say, (laughs) I want them both. Right. And then my team will be like, well, you got to prioritize them, Ian. And so, okay, okay, fair. I I get it. What I'm going to try and do, though, is try and give you a story to answer both. Okay. So, um, first of all, the meaning in business to me of a sourcing hero is is finding solutions where none seems possible. Like that's that's what I, I, I love that. I love when somebody can find that solution where, you know, 20 other people before them have thrown their hands up and they just say, no, it's impossible. So that's what I think heroism is in, in, in this industry that I now find myself in, right? Which is, you know, finding sustainable alternatives. So um, <clears throat> a couple of people come to mind when I think of that. A guy in my, bo- uh, guy in my board, um, Adam Lowry, uh, he was the founder of uh, Method and, uh, and Ripple Foods as well. And very early on in the founding of both those companies, they started with the principle of 100% recycled and recyclable packaging. And this is way before the trend of this now. So so trailblazing. Uh, Yvonne Chouinard at Patagonia and the team at Patagonia are incredible as well. But I'd also call out um, companies like Airbnb and TaskRabbit that the teams, the ops teams that work in them have have found nascent illiquid markets where supply doesn't meet demand and have found a way to create supply, right? Which is the nature of, of kind of sourcing. You go and find what you need in order to create the product you want. And Airbnb is the most obvious example, you know, millions of hosts uh, worldwide that are actually creating some meaningful income that didn't exist 
15 years ago, right? So that's the, that's the stuff that I think is heroism is finding, finding ways to create more liquidity in those, in those markets. So that's my, that's my core answer to what you're saying. I would, I would add the other thing, which is, which is, you know, a little bit more about how that can come to be. And for us at Circular and following some of the executive coaching that I've benefited from, from my career. So at Google and Airbnb and TaskRabbit, there's a couple of executive coaches that have helped us think about how do you, how do you get into that mindset of being that hero, being that sourcing hero that finds the, the way through. And the answer we, we have internally is, is this kind of process, this tool that we call the hero's journey, actually, right? So it's, it's um, nicely related to your podcast here, but the hero's <laughs> journey follows uh, anthropological study um, that was done by a guy called Joseph Campbell a while ago. And he took, um, uh, he took um, uh, um, a, a massive study throughout uh, many um, different parts of the world and found that common kind of storytelling has an arc to it. So it goes around and the average story that lasts the test of time has an arc to it. And uh, our coaching and our way of developing this way of kind of problem solving in our organization follows that arc, right? So it starts with sensing what's wrong and being able to do that. It then moves to before you start solving anything, you seek truth. You go into hypothesize, hypothesizing what is wrong and what could be done around it. And then you go into solving, which is really making decisions. And then you go into starting. So we follow this, and that's the kind of hero's journey. And within that, there are typical traps that normal humans can fall into. There's the knower trap, which is like, I, I know the answer. This is the way we're going. Or there's the victim trap, which is like, oh, it's impossible. I can't do this. And, and there are ways that we can apply thinking to break through those barriers that we typically find. So... So the hero's journey is something that we actually apply internally in order to create that juju that can get us past, you know, systemic problems that have have uh, bested other folks. There you go. Well, hopefully that was. Hopefully that gave you an answer. Yeah. No, it does, and it's certainly on message for the Sourcing Hero podcast. Uh, so, Ian, if people have listened in and found your message compelling and are fascinated by all the information that you were able to share. What is the best way for them to get in touch with you, to get in contact, or to find out more? Great. Yep. So um, Ian at circular.co. That's the easiest one. I-A-N at circular.co. Super easy. Uh, you can go and, and see our website. You can see how our platform works and what we're trying to do um, at circular.co. Um, uh, obviously, LinkedIn as well. You can find us at circular.co there and uh, Ian Arthurs. Uh, I will say that... Um, uh, I tend to I tend to really focus on product solutions and not social media. So I'm more I, I'm less focused on the social side and more focused on, on on our team. So send me an email and I'll, I'll gladly respond. I love talking to people who are, are thinking new things and finding new ways and are open to uh, to new solutions. So uh, send me an email. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here, Ian, and for sharing all of your insights. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sourcing Hero podcast. Join us again next time for more true stories of sourcing and business heroism performed by your colleagues and peers. Look for the Sourcing Hero wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe. Finally, don't forget, 
sourcing heroism is taking place all around us every day. Keep your eyes open and you're bound to see it. Until next time, I'm your host, Kelly Barner. Stay well and always remember that you can be a hero too.